Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Jeffrey Moore, the best-selling author, investor, and advisor. In this episode, Jeffrey shares the biggest takeaway from working with Regis McKenna in the late 80s, and we then ran through an overview of Crossing the Chasm framework and how it was developed during a great time of innovation. We then dove into how the different stages of growth can impact churn and retention, and we wrapped up by discussing the importance of focusing on power metrics over performance metrics. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me direct on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm. The podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. For the listeners, I'm really excited to have Jeffrey today on the show. He is a best-selling author, speaker, and advisor, best known for Crossing the Chasm and Zone to Win, with his latest book being The Infinite Staircase. Jeffrey is also a venture partner at Wildcast Venture Partners and more Davido. Ventures and currently serves as a board member for WorkFusion and Enlight Neutronics. So, my first question for you, Jeffrey, is you got to work with Regis McKenna between 1986 and 1991, from what I gathered on LinkedIn. Uh, he was also obviously very famous for the work he did with Apple and others. What was your biggest takeaway and lesson that you took from Regis while working during that period with him? Well, that was an amazing time. That was the 80s, and high tech marketing was really just coming into existence. There'd been consumer marketing forever. Now, you could argue that Regis in some ways was the father of high-tech marketing because it was based on PR, not advertising. And it was based on the idea that people want to be educated, not just promoted to. That, that was kind of a big deal. And he, the framework that we used, it became the framework that shaped my whole career. It's called the technology adoption lifecycle. You know, probably, maybe I should just recap it very briefly to sort of kind of set the context maybe further discussion. So that it, all it says is that when you introduce disruptive technologies into any community, the community will segregate into a set of adoption strategies. And they kind of go linearly. So like the first people that buy in, we call the technology enthusiasts. And they just are interested in how it works and what it's doing, kind of like laboratory folks. Uh, the first people that come in with big dollars are called the visionaries. And they want to use the, it, the disruption to leapfrog the competition. So they want to go first. They're willing to be the pioneer. They, they, they want, they'll go ahead of the herd. They'll lean in. Uh, the next group we call the pragmatists. They're saying, well, hey, I'll do it, but only when it's ready for prime time. So basically, I'm going to do it when I see other people doing it. And it turns out that decision process where you're saying, I'm not going to do it till other people do it. 
But when they do do it, I'm going to do it too. It has a big impact on the on the on how high tech markets develop. Then the fourth and fifth were the conservatives who are saying, "Well, I'm going to postpone this as long as possible, but eventually I will capitulate." And then the skeptics who are saying, "I'm I'm not going to buy into this at all." And what what was interesting on the the the, the thing that I added to the mix maybe was that the first two groups, the visionaries and the technology enthusiasts, they created something we ended up calling the early market, which are people who believe what you believe, and they want they want to succeed, and you want them to succeed too because you want references. And what you're particular as a vendor, what you're interested in the early market is a marquee account, a big brand name account who uses your technology in some really miraculous way, because that's going to put you on the map. That somebody's going to, they're not going to, they don't, they don't have to write about you. They're going to write about the big brand name, but, they're, but you'll get mentioned because of what you did. Then the other thing was this thing called the chasm. And that was the pragmatist holding back saying, I don't think it's ready for prime time yet. And a lot of, this is what I saw at Regis. A lot of companies would get these incredible early market successes, but then they would like just fall off the end of the earth. And, and so what was going on? This chasm problem. And the problem was, you needed to get pra- pragmatists want references, but you don't have references, and they want them for their particular use case. And you've got, you know, maybe one use case like that, but you've got twelve different use cases. So the idea with crossing the chasm was find a cohort of pragmatists with one use case in one industry, so they talk to each other, and that they can't solve that use case, but you can, and then just laser focus on nailing that one use case and winning that that group of pragmatists. Because once you win that group, that first group, now you have what we call the beachhead market. And now you can go from that beachhead to adjacent segments, adjacent use cases, and you and you could build out. And that was the, we call it the, the bowling alley, because it was the idea one pin will knock over the next pin will knock over the next pin. Both of those things, by the way, there's still no budget. In the early market, there's not, the, I mean, you have to create the budget because nobody's ever heard of this thing. In the bowling alley, there's budget, but it's budget for the old way of doing things. So you have to actually redirect the budget. So in both of those cases, it's very challenging selling. This is why big companies don't like the early market and the bowling alley, because it's very hard. You can't use your scale, your Salesforce scale, in either one of those places. But if you win over a few bowling pins, all of a sudden, everybody goes, well, hang on. This is for everybody. And that's what we call the tornado. And the second book, was, first book was called Crossing the Chasm. And the second ball is called Inside the Tornado. And that's just the opposite. That's when everybody has budget, and they're all going to spend it this year. And whoever gets the most market share is going to be what we call the gorilla. And so it was a huge, huge battle royal for that. So we call that the tornado. And a tornado lasts less than a decade, more than a year and less than 10 years. Probably four to six years kind of thing. And then after that, people are still spending a lot of money in the category. They're going to be spending it for, for maybe decades. But we call that mainstream. And, and the interesting thing about, uh, about our world and the SaaS world that we're, we're in today is in the old world, in the 80s, if you won the tornado, the, cu- the customer was captive on Main Street. They, they couldn't leave. And frankly, customer support was, was horrible. But there was no churn because it was just how we you had no place to go. There was nothing else. <laughs> but in the SaaS world, all of a sudden, Main Street became really important. And this word churn, which never appeared, the, the word churn was never used in, in the 20th century, but it's become your, the, the title of your podcast in the 21st century. That's a Main Street phenomenon. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely see that as well. Like I've discussed this previously on the podcast. I can't remember the episode, but just the sheer amount of competition that we have today and the, the variety of choice and how the switching costs has become so much easier to switch between platform to platform versus back in the 80s, 90s, uh, 2000s, when 
there was very, very limited suppliers and software providers out there for you to go and choose. Uh, so I mean, it, it, you, you would say, I'm an HP shop. I'm an IBM shop. That meant you didn't use anybody else's hardware. You yeah. didn't use anybody else's networks. You didn't use anybody else's disk drives. You didn't use anybody else's software. I mean, it was a completely bespoke world, which was great. At the time. By the way, it was amazing. I mean, people yeah. did great. But the client-server revolution, the internet and uh, Unix, the inter- and the internet, I think, and then and then Windows as the client kind of began to level, and the Oracle database began to level the playing field, and that's when for the customers started to have more choices. And now, and then the cloud, of course, cloud computing changed the whole game because now you really could have software as a service, exactly. which was not that was not available in the 20th century. It must have been such a fascinating period, uh, like going through this transition and sort of figuring these things out and understanding uh, sort of the, the innovations uh, dilemma. And then also, like, as you said, you introduced the crossing the chasm as a concept with the early adopters and the uh, late majority. I don't like constantly how many times like I've either heard the term crossing the chasm come up in previous roles and jobs. Like it's just unbelievable how many times or going to conferences and how many times I've seen those uh, different slides uh, on people's presentations. What gave sort of the early inspiration and understanding, like where did this insight come from? Uh, because obviously you were in the center of you in San Francisco at the time, innovation was rife there. But really, like, at what point did uh, Regis and then yourself later sort of take a step back and say, okay, like this is actually what's going on all around us? Because I think when you're in the thick of it, it's very hard to take a step back and see it from the outside. But then now seeing like reading the book and seeing like the different presentations, it all just makes so much sense and it, it's clear in one aspect. But what was some of the early work that you did around there just to figure this out? Well, it's funny because I had been at three software companies before I went to Regis. And in two of them, I took products into the chasm that didn't get out. So, in other words, so I was carrying this sort of burden of guilt. It's sort of like, oh my God, you know. And, and the, the feeling always was, was there was some mismanagement problem. And then I got to Regis and I saw really good companies and the same thing was happening again and again and again. And, and, and frankly, other people, I mean, because Regis was, was so good at, at the communications and they had so many clients, people were, people were saying, oh, well, you know, they made a mistake or blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, nah, nah, nah. I'm partially because I probably carry this guilty conscience. I said, no, I think there's something else going on. So I was the chasm guy. And, and, and we, 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 so the privilege of being at that company was, Virtually every major high tech company came through those doors in the five years I was there. Yeah. They were just, it was Mecca. And so you got to see it over and over and over again, <coughs> both, you know, inside companies with a new product line or with startup companies. I mean, both, both kinds of situations. And so that was, that was huge. And, and then once you began to look at it and then you say, well, what would it take? And initially it was more of a theoretical exercise. The idea was, well, what would it take theoretically to cross the chasm? And so we sort of built the theory, and then we started, you know, advising people to implement the theory, and it worked. And so, <clears throat> which was, you know, very gratifying. Yeah. Uh, and then the more, the more we actually, as people did it more and more, we learned a lot more about it, and we developed the whole playbook. So the playbook is now 35 years old, and uh, there's an institute called Chasm Institute that all it does is teach that playbook. So, you know, it's still around. Yeah, and it's probably in conversation now in some boardroom or some marketing meeting that's happening somewhere at this point. In yeah, because we bet, you know, we, we have all this bets on this disruptive technology, and we know damn well if we can get it to scale, it'll have huge impact. Yeah, But getting over that hump, that pragmatist adoption hump, it's, it's one of the milestones. And, and I would say people, 
I would say people give it lip service a lot. When you actually have to sign up to do it, there's more work in it than sometimes people want to acknowledge. They yeah. kind of want to leave some magic chasm wand. It's like, no, you, you really have to actually do the real work. To figure it out. I, I think as well, one of the things, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like early stage startups as well, at least today, a lot of thing I see in the beginning is like, you start to launch the product, you're seeing like really good traction in the beginning. So as you're getting your early adopters excited about the product and you get to this point where now you're starting to um, get close to crossing chasm and then you start to see the cracks and things emerging. And I think most of the time startups at this stage don't really have a clear direction on who the ideal customer profile is, who they're building for. They're a little bit reluctant to like have a laser focus, like go towards that uh, bowling um, pin strategy. Is there something that you've seen as well, like as a general practice, is that people just not focusing and it's really like it, feeling, I think it also it's a little bit difficult in the beginning when you start to see like you have a lot of traction, you're like, okay, which, where should I put my bets? Like, uh, which pin are we going after first? Well, it, it's it's so much because in the early market, first of all, the, the success mode in the early market is to to share your vision of the possibilities. And the visionaries and the technology enthusiasts who believe what you believe kind of come come toward you. And, and, and you, are, you do have successes. You tend to do projects with them because because we're all working on it together and they lean in and they're doing things and you're doing things. It's enormous fun. It's very, it's emotionally hugely gratifying and it's, it produces amazing results. It doesn't scale. The, the, and so at some point you're going, okay, if I'm going to build a bigger business, how's that going to work? And with, to cross the chasm, the, the reason why people, it's not just that people can't focus. It's a whole new playbook. When you're crossing the chasm, it's not about the technology. It's not even about you. In the early market, it is about the technology and it is about you. Yeah. But when you're crossing the chasm, it's not about the technology and it's not about you. It's about a problem that a customer has. They don't care a, a darn about you. They care about their problem. And what you have to do to win their allegiance is you have to say, I'm going to put my technology and service to your problem, your domain expertise. I'm going to get very, very, very specific, much more specific than I had to with the visionaries. And I'm going to build what we call the whole product, which is not just the core product that I've been building, but whatever else you need in order to solve that problem. So it, it feels very unnatural. And, and, and the entrepreneur, we said, I mean, I'll give you a great example. With the Macintosh, this was desktop publishing. So desktop publishing is what got the Macintosh across the chasm. It was a, a, a job function of a graphic arts department in, a, in an enterprise that you know sold automobiles or whatever else. Steve Jobs hated desktop publishing. He, he said, I did not create the Macintosh to improve the graphics department at General Motors, <laughs> but, he, but because he was a visionary. And so he saw the, the computer for the rest of us. So he saw the Macintosh today. I mean, today the Macintosh is a universal computing capability. If you count GUI, you know, Windows, it's all, it's all effectively Macintosh style. But, but he couldn't cross the chasm. Be, well, he, the company did, but frankly, Steve had to leave. At one, at one point, because he just wouldn't play that game, then he had to come back and rescue the company. That was a, that was a separate that was a separate thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting because I think it is it's, it's a big challenge in the beginning, just trying to figure out. And I think because you start to see like that early interest from the visionaries and so forth, and you worry, okay, like if I take one bet in a single direction, like am I missing out on the other side? And uh, I've seen this as well, like previous roles that I've held, like really like heated discussions going on around like which direction should we be taking and 
Um, but ultimately, like, and I've seen it firsthand when you start to understand, like, that's why I mentioned previously to this call, uh, where I was at Hotjar previously, we, at some point we realized, okay, there was a little bit of an issue that we had with churn and retention at some point in the company's life cycle. And we were really hitting this point where we had like exhausted the visionaries who we were starting now to cross the chasm, going a little bit more uh, towards mainstream. And uh, we realized at that point that like, we had these discussions of crossing the chasm and we need to pick, uh, really dive into our ICPs and getting to the final result where the company was aligned and saying, okay, yes, this is who we're serving. This is the problem. This is the use case. And this, like everybody needs to align around these. Uh, it took quite a while, but once we did that, like that again was like a step change in the business and you could really start to see like the impact on retention and on the business uh, itself. And, you know, the thing is, if you don't do it, if, as long as you, because you, because you, you, you raised some important points, who knows this right, what, right, which is the right use case? Won't I miss out on this other use case if I do this? The problem is if you don't do it, you'll just flounder in the chasm forever and you'll, and you'll, you'll, you will not scale and you will eventually lose something and you'll eventually go whack or get acquired for some very, very minimal amount of money. So that's not what we want. So, so the point is any choice is better than no choice. Even, I mean, really seriously, even a, even a third rate choice will have more success than no choice at all. And, and the game then is going to be for this one time, you're going to put the customer's use case at the center of your universe, which is a really, it's a game changer because that's not what you've been doing as a startup. What you've been doing as a startup is you put the technology at the center of your universe. And you were in service to the technology. Now, all of a sudden, you've really changed. It's almost like getting married. You know, it's like, all of a sudden, there's this other person in your world who's more important than you are. And, and so, and by the way, that scales, but, it does, but that also eventually doesn't scale either. I mean, eventually, you do have to go back to horizontal. It's amazing. But it, so it's, it's weird, but there's that weird moment where you've got to be really, really tightly focused. Yeah, so, and I definitely see that as well. It's like... In the beginning, and you often hear like these really bad quotes as well of Henry Ford. And if you'd asked them what they want, they would have said a foster horse and things like this. And I think there's just different stages in a company's growth when you need to be visionary and when you really just need to be doubling down on the customer and their pain point and their problem and uh, and guidance. And it, I, you see on the other end, companies failing at this, where they get through the chasm, they've built a great audience, and then they just stop innovating and uh, they die a death on the other end as well. Well, that, you know, I think that, so the two times when I think you get to be sort of self-centric are in the early market because really you are the inventor and in the tornado, because if you don't grab market share, your competitor will, and you'll end up being a marginal solution. Most of the market is spent either crossing the chasm, but really the most of the time is spent on what we call a main street. But in both those times, it's really important that you not be self-centric, that you be in service to your customers, particularly now in main street in the SaaS world. Where the customer, as you point out, has it has you know we, we call it LTV, you know, lifetime value of the customer. Well, the term, yeah, and, and, and over time, if you don't invest in that relationship, just like again, with your you choose to get married or have a have a have a, have a romantic attachment, uh, you know, if you don't invest in the relationship, it deteriorates. Conversely, what churn attrition programs should say, if you do invest in the relationship, and you don't have to invest a ton. But you do have to invest, you have to show up and you have to be there consistently and you have to continually adopt the other side's point of view. And I'm saying, what does this look like? How are they? So we talk about customer experience. By the way, in the 20th century, we never talked about the, we talked about the user interface. We never talked about the customer experience, but now it's the customer experience because they have the power. And if they, if they choose to churn out, 
the SaaS business model is very punishing. If you, the whole point of the SaaS business model is you've got to it's keep done. the customer. Yeah, you, yeah. You, don't have, you don't have a business if you don't keep the customer. Um, yeah, so and the other thing as well that I found fascinating as well, like going through the frameworks and uh, the book itself was the idea of how demanding the different audiences are. And uh, this is something as well I've seen and have had other discussions with founders around like, making the switch from the the visionaries uh, to the pragmatists and how less forgiving they tend to become. So that's also like a typical time where we see churn increasing a little bit more in the business is because they're not going to accept that little bug or that slight missing feature and things like this. And then they're just going to leave the service. And how have you seen this evolve like through your career and with different companies? So again, in the early market, there's a lot of forgiveness because they, they know it's early days. You know it's early days. Everybody has goodwill. Hey, we'll, we'll find the bugs. We'll fix the bugs, right? The pragmatist is going, even the early pragmatists are going, look, I have a business to run here. I, I mean, if you're going to help me, I'm interested, but I'm gonna, like, I don't want to join your business. I, I want to run my business. So all, every bug that shows up in your product is like, well, you just slowed my business down. Oh, you just slowed my business down again. I mean, at some point, I get pretty cranky about it. And by the time you get to conservatives who are basically not conservatives have never really made their peace with technology. So they, they, they tolerate it. And the more invisible it is, the better. So the best technology in the world is some computer chip in their car that they don't even know about. Right. But as soon as, as soon as, as soon as anything go wrong, they get very upset because they don't really know what's going on. They can't, it's sort of magical. It's like, what, what, what's, and so they just get very cranky and they, and they, they, they withdraw. So and you have to assume that since we know that software products always have bugs in them, that we have to continually proactively ping the customer and test the experience. And when we have a, when we get a, a piece of feedback that something screwed up, we want to be all over it because actually, if you respond to a bug in a, in a, in a quick and responsive and successful way, that you actually increase customer satisfaction over where it was before the bug was even seen because you. You did something about it. So it's not that you can't have bugs, but what you can't do is let bugs linger and you can't be unresponsive. And so all this, all this technology now about how to detect the customer experience through telemetry earlier and earlier, that's a big, big deal because customers aren't going to always call. They're just going to kind of go sideways or go quiet. You know, they're, and maybe they'll, they will, maybe they will subscribe for another whole year without like using your product, but eventually they're going to go away. And we're going to kick these guys out. And as I said, in a SaaS model, that's very painful. Yeah. And, and those are sort of the interactions that you typically like, you'll hear about them if your customer is passionate about the product or service, but if it's just like another tool in their arsenal uh, themselves, like they might see the bug once, twice, they might still appear to be active because they need the service and they, ha they have the subscription, but at the end of that year, uh, they're going to be looking somewhere else. And then you're going to be scratching your head wondering like, why did they leave? It looked like they were using the product, but nobody ever reached out to us. It's, uh, yeah. And I think, I think part of the thing also is there's really two business models that we're talking about with one vocabulary. There's the consumer model and there's the enterprise model. So in the consumer model, literally, when they stop, they stop. I mean, the, 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 it's very transactional. In the enterprise, there's this much more inertial momentum because there'll be there'll be a an enterprise license agreement or something like that. And so when you look at, at the at the techniques we have for managing the churn in the in the consumer market, they're very data driven. You you can, you don't have a customer success department. You can't afford one. You can have product led growth. You can have a little product 
things inside your product that trigger when we see certain customer telemetry behaviors. But other than that, it's got to be all data driven. Whereas in the enterprise, you do have customer success managers and you can, in addition to telemetry, which will give you early signals, you can reach over the top of the system and talk to another person at the other end saying, hey, you know, we noticed that things have fallen off, but uh, is there something that we need to do or blah, 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 and, and re- re-engage there. So I think listeners to this thing, when you're thinking about your churn problem, you have to ask yourself, am I in a more B2B or in a more B2C model? Because the solutions to that problem are very different. Yeah. And typically the churn rates to those problems will be completely different as well. Yes. Yes. It's interesting you, you bring up like customer success as well, because one of the things I noticed you spent a little bit of time at Salesforce at some point in your career as well. And I think Salesforce themselves were uh, like, that's basically where I think where customer success started uh, and it really was born at that company. How have you seen the landscape shift over time? And what would you say is maybe like one of the biggest changes you've noticed in software companies like from the 90s, 2000s to today? Like what has been the biggest shift that you would say uh, you've noticed? Yeah, so so I've been in, I never actually was never an employee at Salesforce, but I knew work from early days. And, and then I became an advisor to the company about six or seven. Well, the yep. book Zump the Wind was mm-hmm. written with Salesforce, Mark's team at Salesforce and Satya Nadella's team at Microsoft. So so that was kind of, that was about seven years ago. And that we became very, I became an advisor to Salesforce. And I've been very close working with the last seven years, which is a huge privilege, by the way. They're a really great company. Yeah. But if you see what's, what's changed, because Mark was at Oracle in the 90s, right? And, and Satya was at Microsoft in the 90s. So it, 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 in the, in those days, it was, it was a vendor centric world. And, and it was, it was pro- a lot of product, a lot of emphasis on product. And it was a lot of emphasis on selling and closing and, 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 and selling big, big deals. And, and it, it, it basically you went to the top of the pyramid. So when Mark introduced software as a service, and that was the beginning, I think, of this whole discussion, software as a service allowed the next layer down in the pyramid to have enterprise quality software when they didn't have their own data centers, they didn't have their own database administrators, and all that kind of stuff. That was like, whoa. That, and it started with just departments. It was just sales departments using Salesforce because Siebel was, Siebel was for the vice president of sales, but it wasn't for the sales guy. So we were able to kind of do this sort of land and expand. There was no land and expand motion in the 90s. It was just landed with a big thump. <laughs> but, but, but then it was land and expand. And so it was, it was very interesting. And, and all of this, all of these little changes that had the effect of transferring power from the vendor to the customer. The customer could buy more incrementally. The, the customer could try and buy. The, we could, they could, could expand or land or, or whatever. And so in terms of you start seeing technology come in from the bottom up, as opposed to from the top down. So this was the, this was IBM, this was HP, this was yeah. NAC, this was, this was Salesforce, ServiceNow. You know these guys coming up from from the bottom, and so um, and so that was it. That was that was a, a big deal. And the, and then you built these relationships with end users, uh, where the end user productivity actually was kind of your signal of success. And that was before it used to be. Did the big boss you know write the big check? So. It, it just it was a very different dynamic. Yeah. It almost like sounds as well, like at this point in time, that was Salesforce's approach, like their bowling pin uh, approach is that they were the IBMs at the time. They had the on-premise and then they realized they really need to like pick a strategy, focus on a specific customer and problem uh, and go after that and really put the customer at the center of everything. And 
putting the customer meant like, I'm not going to do these big sales deals. I'm not going to be trying to close. I'm going to give them the power, give them the ability to pick and choose as they wish and really focus on them. And uh, obviously uh, the rest is history. I think it's just- well, I mean, it, 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 their, their initial segment was actually the tech sector, which it was the sales department, the district sales departments in high tech companies. It's kind of who were the, who were the first use case that was repeatable. And and after a while, it was like everybody, everybody in tech in the sales force had the thing. And then they added it to the service department. That was their second use case, which the customer service. So it was sales and service. And then actually, maybe as much as a 10 years later, marketing came into the game because marketing initially was, was outboard of sales and service. And so that was, and that was CRM and, you know, that, 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 that whole, that whole thing. So it, it builds. I mean, I, I think we want to be ambitious. We do want to get to scale. But I think it's important not to, if you go too fast, too far, you, you run out of, you, it's like a general that outruns his own supply chain. So then you're, you're out in the middle of a battlefield, but you can't have any ammunition because you're, well, I don't want to talk about war, not in Europe. Yeah. Please be careful. <laughs> not, not a great time to talk about that. Not a great time. Uh, yeah. Military metaphors probably should be put, put away for a while. From business as well, like completely, we, we spoke about this previously in marketing as well, like how many uh like military metaphors are used in business it's crazy and uh, you wonder where they all came from as well uh but so well, they came for they came from vendor-centric marketing and they don't belong in customer-centric marketing exactly it's a nice way to phrase it you've had a, a couple of really good ways of phrasing uh different things we've discussed today i love it um so the the next thing that i was interested in as well is you you mentioned tornadoes uh, being the next step like and this as well tends to be like a stage where companies can also end up fizzling and dying, even though they've got all this great momentum. What are some of the areas where you end up seeing like churn and retention becoming an issue at this stage of growth for companies? Well, what happens is because everybody's coming into the market at once, there's, there's a real, uh, you, and you know that if the customer has budget this year, they're going to spend it this year. So your sales force is competing to get every sale they can get. Well, that means they start going after sales where your product is maybe a so-so fit, but not a great fit. Now, in, in, in the old days, if once you were in, you were in, you could, you could make that work. But in a SaaS world, what happens is you actually land because people have got budget, they'll spend it, but, but you don't expand. And in fact, you don't even land hard enough to have high switching costs. So <clears throat> the following year, you, you, you find yourself churned out. Now you're in real trouble because, because, you were uh, you made five million dollars last year. You're going to make ten million dollars this year, but but right in the middle of the year, a one million dollars of your business churned out. So that now you've got to just make another million just to get back to where you wanted it. So I mean, churn is just it's just it's like it's like it's like a heart disease. It's it's really 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 dangerous. And so so it's much more important to be able to say I can build reliably and sustainably. Even if I'm going more slowly. Now, when you go more slowly in a tornado and other people jump ahead of you, if they are able to hold on to their lead, they're going to be the gorilla and you're not. And that's a big deal because the gorilla gets most of the profits. And the next person gets a good amount. After that, it's everybody fighting for whatever's left. So the gorilla game is a really important game to win. But if you can't win it, then the next best play is, is we call it the chip game, the chimpanzee game, which is okay, retreat back into some bowling pins where you can be the local the local winner and build your franchise there. I mean, if you think about it, that's what Macintosh did. The PC won 
the IBM PC won the the, the, uh, the Gorilla game. Yeah, the Mac, but the Mac held on, and that allowed them ultimately to to you know become the most valuable company in the world uh, at least two years ago. I don't know how they are doing now, but they were two years ago. Yeah, so they retreated a little bit, but then innovated around that as well, introduced new product lines and products from there. Uh, it's interesting. You also you mentioned around like the sales. This is something we've discussed a few times on the show of misaligned sales incentives, where you're just trying to close deals for the sake of closing deals and ultimately closing the wrong fit customers, and which ends up hurting you down the line because one you have in churn, but then you also have the like the added cost of additional support supporting customers that aren't good fits, uh, building potential features from the feedback that comes in that are not the right fits, and ultimately like this also ends up slowing the company down. Uh, over time and uh, allows your competitors to rise up. So this is a really important point you're making. It, uh, we, the phrase we try to use for it in our consulting practice is performance metrics versus power metrics. So the literal financial performance, any sale is a performance metric. If I sold $10, I got $10 in my performance scorecard. But the question is, is that a good sale or a bad sale? So I could get, I could make $10 on the performance, but I might have lost points on my power scorecard because I sold it to the wrong customer or the wrong feature. Conversely, if I can sell the same use case into the same customer base and build momentum and build local power and an ecosystem starts to form around me, my power metrics are going up. And power is, is, is the best predictor of future performance. So in the venture capital world, we actually care only about power. I mean, we, we, we look at performance metrics, but they're, all we're looking at, because whether they made 5 million or 10 million, that cares. But what matters is, yeah, but did they make five to ten million dollars of powerful stuff? So I can now predict that they're going to double, double, triple, triple, or whatever it is. That is a big deal. And so I think anybody in this business needs to think about look at your company through performance metrics, because everybody will. But then look at your company through power metrics. Yeah, I love that, uh, and really focusing on what matters. And ultimately, I think this is also one of the things like why net MRR attention is such a strong predictor of a company's valuation that you see in the public markets and also where you get from um, private investors too is because it means like if you have really, really strong net MRR attention, if you've nurtured those relationships and uh, as you mentioned as well, like previously, like if you have a relationship romantic, like I'm married, it's my anniversary on Thursday when we're recording this. Oh, okay, by the way, how many years think you've been married? How many uh, years? She's putting me on the spot. Yeah, I'm going to say four four years, and I know my wife's going to listen to this. <laughs> well, okay. I, I, by the way, I have fifty. I have fifty years on you. Fifty four years at my end. Very nice. Very nice. So I'm, I'm surprising her, but uh, the point was like nurturing these relationships. Uh, it's important so you can grow that net tomorrow attention over time. Uh, and ultimately, this is sort of what gives you that big, uh, big multiple at the end of the day. It's what companies and investors are looking for it's like if you don't put another sentence to this business will they continue to grow and uh, that's the beautiful thing about like building a really really strong uh well in fact, when you talk about a, the multiple is a power metric so your your price to earnings ratio is is, is a performance matrix in other words you know, that what you're that's a performance metric but when you get when you get a five to ten to fifteen percent but you have a multiple on something Beyond what they what say one to two is like for an industrial company, if you get one to three times revenue somewhere in there, it depends on the category, of course. But that's that would be normal for a profitable, you know, industrial thing. When you start seeing 25 times revenue, that's a power metric. I mean, the people what the people are saying is, and by the way, when it was Uber two years ago, now we're by the way, the economy, in case you hadn't noticed, is changing. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a lot. We'll, we'll, we'll separate that for a moment. 
But at least two years ago, Uber could be losing a billion dollars a quarter and its stock was crazily high because see, people said, yeah, because look at their power. They're so powerful. Yeah. And, and so I think, I think understanding that that metric is important. The dynamic, the retention rates that they have, the, the market yeah. that they've captured and, um, at any point they could like shift to profitability and then you'd start to see output there. And that is the SaaS model. Yeah, that, 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 the SaaS model is very predictable for the next few years. So, so, but, but, but the, you, if you have churn, if, as you said, if your net MRR starts going the wrong direction, yeah, that there's a leak in the boat and you better patch it fast. For sure. And I think that's also like the net tomorrow attention. If you take a look at the most valuable companies in SaaS that are public today, it's, it's the biggest indicator of uh, what you're getting on multiples. Uh, yeah. Nice. So oh, I see we're running up on time. I want to make sure I ask you a couple of questions, ask every guest uh, that joins the show. <laughs> Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario that you join a new company and churn retention is not doing great at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, okay, Jeff, like, you really need to turn things around. You're in charge. You have 90 days to do it. Uh, what do you do? The catch? You're not going to tell me that I'm going to go speak to customers, figure out the pain points or look at data. You're just going to take something, a tactic that you've seen be effective at another company and apply it at this place and hope that it works and reduces for this company too. What would you do? Well, Besides, leave we're... the company. Uh, well, no, 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 it's okay. We're, 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 we're in a firefight, right? We're in it. Yeah. I think I would, I would assemble my, my best customer facing people. In other words, whoever's had the most, given their customer success job, customer support, whatever the heck it is. But these are people who over the last 90 days have been in, in direct communication with customers. Bring them into a room, say, guys, what's the problem? And, and by the way, they know what the problem is. I mean, it's not, it's not like we don't know what the problems are. We just have taboos about telling the big boss about what the problems are. So, so we get in a room, close the doors, under the seal of the confessional. Okay, what the hell is going wrong here? And then what is it going to take to fix it? And we're going to come up with a plan to fix it. And then we're just going to go to the plan. So you're going to focus on the team. Nice. So last question then is, what's one thing that you know today about Chenna Retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? <laughs> um, I, think, I think what I didn't appreciate, well, it was, it was the power of telemetry. In fact, it, not only me, the, it, virtually my entire client base. I mean, Microsoft didn't have telemetry with Office until like maybe seven years ago. So, so and, and telemetry is just such a game changer because all of a sudden, for the first time, you had signal, and what you because otherwise you were reaching out anecdotally, and anecdotes don't scale, but telemetry does scale. So I think they and now, by the way, telemetry is being built into everything. It's being built into washing machines. It's being built into cars. It's being built into you know air conditioning, the whole thing. And tele, because then tele, and now and now you can have machine learning on top of that. But even before machine learning, just getting the signal in itself was important. How important is to understand the signals. Nice. It's been a pleasure hosting you today. Uh, Jeff, is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Anything they should be aware of to keep up to speed with your work? Well, no, but I do think we all have to be respect the fact that the world's about to go into a very different economic uh, dynamic, probably for the next two years at least. And so when you're playing in a downturn, churn is even more full because getting new logos is, is even harder. And so maintaining customer loyalty is even more important. And, and the, the chances to raise revenue by expanding are much greater than the challenge uh, by, by landing. So, so all the things that we're talking about now that are kind of good health things in a boom economy become almost like life-supporting 
in a in a in a challenging economy. I think it's a great uh, way to end the show as well. So, thank you so much uh, for joining today, Jeff. I really really appreciate the time. It's been fantastic having you. And for the listeners, we'll make sure to leave all the show notes and anything that was discussed uh, for you to catch up there. So, thanks very much for joining, Jeff, and uh, best of luck uh, for the new. Okay, year. pleasure to be here, Andrew. Thanks a lot. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.